Our sermon text today comes from Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, and I will begin reading in verse 1. You can find this on page 947 in the Bibles there in the pew. So I'll be reading Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul warns us in this verse not to think too highly of ourselves. Some of you may know Paul Vitz. He's a well-known writer. He commented on the dangers of the self-esteem movement. There was an interesting study about self-esteem in 1989. It was a study of uh, mathematical skills in eight different countries. American students in this study ranked lowest in mathematical ability, and Korean students ranked highest. But when it came time to assess how they felt about their mathematical ability, American students ranked highest, and Korean students ranked lowest. That's quite humorous, isn't it? Americans felt very good about their mathematical ability when they were the worst. Koreans felt badly about their mathematical ability when they were the best. That, that is self-esteem gone amok, isn't it? We, when we look at these verses, however, it was intentional that we read verses 1 and 2. Remember, when we're looking at these exhortations, I spent a lot of time on this last week, that they're a response, these exhortations, to the mercies of God, which we sang a lot about this morning. They're a response to God's grace. Secondly, when we look at verses 3 through 8 today, they're another way of talking about what we looked at last week. They're another way of talking about giving ourselves totally to God, of giving our lives as a living sacrifice. What does it mean to give our lives as a living sacrifice? Well, there's lots of things to say. And, and actually all of what we read in Romans 12 through 15 and in many other passages as, as well. So let's... Uh, dive into this text for today, I see three truths in this text. First, assess yourself wisely. Assess yourself wisely. That's verse 3. Second, 
realize, verses 4 and 5, realize that we have different gifts as believers. And thirdly, verses 6 through 8, focus, focus on the gifts you have. So let's begin with verse 3. Assess yourself wisely. So let's read that verse again. Paul, Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So Paul begins by referring to the grace given to him. So these words show Paul's not just giving us a personal opinion here. He is writing out of the grace given to him. He's writing the authoritative word of God. Did you notice that he says, I'm writing to everyone among you? Do you ever think when you listen to a sermon, hey, that's a good message for someone else? I have thought that. Do you ever think, I don't really need to hear what's being said today, but Jill and Joe, they need this sermon. They definitely do. But Paul makes it clear here that every single one of us needs to hear this message. He tells us that specifically, doesn't he? Every one of us need to hear the commands given here. So let's listen to these commands for our own spiritual good. Let's not drift into thinking, that's what other people need to hear. But, I, but I've mastered this. I don't, I don't need to hear this. Paul, Paul also emphasizes that he doesn't give these words, right, in his own strength. He gives these words as one who has been shown the grace of God. So we're not surprised. What's his first command here? This is for every one of us. Here's the first command. Don't get an inflated view of yourself. Have a sensible and realistic estimate of yourself. So the first thing we can say is remember, if you're a believer with us today, remember what's a realistic estimate of yourself. Remember that you're a sinner saved by the grace of God. Remember, you didn't do anything, I didn't do anything, to deserve God's favor. If someone asked you today or this week, Why should you go to heaven? Now, what would you say? What would be your answer? You should reply, because of the mercy of God. Because Christ Jesus took upon himself the punishment I deserved. Your only hope, as the hymn says, is Jesus' blood and righteousness. So if you give another answer, you don't understand the good news. You don't understand the gospel. So so a realistic estimate of ourselves begins with recognizing what? That we're sinners. Sinners saved by the grace of God. So we'll have a realistic estimate of ourselves if we remember that God's grace saved us. Now, as I was reading on this verse, I came across some comments by Adolf Schlatter who wrote on Romans. And and he said some great things here, but I'm going to paraphrase him a little bit. He's a little bit hard to understand, so I'm going to paraphrase what he says, but I think it's just so incredibly helpful. Schlatter says, Paul opposes 
the danger that comes from the idea that we should all be equal. You know, equality is a huge thing in American society and culture and thought, isn't it? And equality is a, is a, is a, is a great ideal, and yet in American society it's exaggerated, isn't it? If you think about equality, it's one of those ideals that isn't rightly situated when we compare all the other truths that are out there. Paul opposes the idea, says Schlatter, that we should all be equal. All of us want to be like others. None of us, now listen to this closely, none of us wants to be less spiritual than anybody else. We want to be equal spiritually. And that that sounds like it's a good thing, but it isn't. When this happens, Schlatter says, we begin to live based on impossible wishes. And we try to do things beyond our strength, thinking that such things are faith. There's a kind of false spirituality that tries to attempt what God is not calling upon us to attempt, an inflated view of ourselves. Faith removes such fantasies because it frees us from a selfish striving after perfection and greatness. So we're to strive after God, aren't we? But there's a, there's a selfish striving after perfection and greatness that he warns us against here. Instead, we're called upon to obey and do God's will. We're to purify ourselves from proud independence and use the gifts God has given us and be content I think that's the key. Be content with who and what God has made us to be. Look again at verse 3. God has assigned a different amount of faith to each one of us. I think Paul refers here to the quantity of our faith. Literally, the words here are, God has measured a measure of of faith to each one of us. So I think that's clearly speaking of quantity. In other words, he's given each one of us a certain portion, a certain amount of faith. There's no excuse for sin here. No excuse for lack of faith. But but Paul is focusing on what God has done in our lives. Not what we've done. We can't boast about the amount of faith we have. Isn't this remarkable? Our faith, our trust is given to us by God. God gave us the faith that we have. He gave us the amount of faith that we have. And we're to thank Him for granting us that faith. Since it doesn't come from us, but it comes from Him. And God has given some people more faith than others. He's not speaking here of an equal amount of faith. Faith like a mustard seed saves us, doesn't it? God has given some people more faith than others. He's measured different measures of faith. We're to rejoice and be thankful for the faith that he's given us without worrying about, has he given more faith to someone else? See, that, that's, that's where the American idea of equality comes in, right? You mean he's given more faith to other, some Christians more than others? That just strikes at the American spirit. No, we've all got to be equal. That's not what Scripture says. We're not all equal in that way. But be thankful for what the faith God has given you. So the word for us is be realistic. 
recognize what God has made you to be. Without ever giving in to sin, right? There's still a call to strive, isn't there? And to seek God. But don't try to be what you're not, this text is telling us. Don't try to imitate others and live on the basis of their faith. So, so what does that mean? Is this, don't, don't try to be a missionary if God hasn't called you to be a missionary. Don't try to live on the basis of someone else's faith. Sometimes at the seminary, we see people who feel called to the ministry because at some point in their life, they get really excited about the Lord. Praise God. So then they feel called to the ministry. But joy in the Lord doesn't necessarily mean you're called to ministry, does it? Because we need enthusiastic believers in politics and in banks and at pennies and at Target and everywhere. So assess your gifts realistically. This applies in so many areas of life. You may not be gifted as a speaker. You may not be gifted musically. But you have gifts where you notice people who are in pain. And you reach out to them. And you serve them. And you help them. That's a remarkable gift. That's very practical, isn't it, before VBS begins, right? Just practical ways of serving and loving and caring for one another. Here's another example. How wonderful it is. How we praise God that so many in our church have adopted children. But don't think for a moment that you must and you should adopt children just because others have. We don't, we don't live on the basis of others' faith and calling, do we? We, we, don't, we don't have this equal idea everyone should do the same thing. We have many families here who have Quite a few children. Don't think that that's necessarily your calling. Just because someone else has a larger family. There's that idea of equality again creeping in, right? Saying, well, we all must be the same. Now, don't try to live on the basis of faith that God has given someone else. Live on the faith that God has given you. Bloom where God has planted you. Find your niche and live out that niche To the glory of God. Don't long for a greatness that God didn't intend you to have. I had a student once when I was at Bethel. He was very young and God bless him. You know, he he visited with me and when he left my office, he turned to me and he said, I'm going to be the next Francis Schaeffer. So I was just stunned at the comment. Well, it didn't happen, right? You don't choose that, you know. You don't choose to be the next Francis Schaeffer. Um, that's something God gives to people. So Paul says, think sensibly about yourself. Don't think too highly. Well, you know, the text says don't think too highly, but let me just think for a moment. Yeah, the other is true as well, isn't it? It's not the focus of the text, but don't think too lowly of yourself either. That's certainly true. We're not, we're not pieces of dirt, are we? We're human beings and we're loved by God. You, you ought not to think, well, I don't have any gifts. I'm of no value to anyone. Then you're thinking too lowly about yourself. Then you're not thinking of God either and what he has done. Remember that God has given you gifts and you can be a significant help to others. I I was struck by this again this week. Some of you remember, some of you remember Jason Meyer, who used to be a member here 
at, at Clifton. And Jason, as you know, or maybe you don't know, but he's going to be the successor to John Piper. And Jason did an interview this week, and he, he began to sense, and others began to say to him, maybe you should succeed John Piper. And what was Jason's response? No, I do not want to do that. I do not want to succeed John Piper. And that, that's a tough uh, venture, isn't it? But God called him to do it, didn't he? And he began to sense that. So don't think too lowly of yourself either. God called Jason to fulfill that, and he began to sense this is a hard thing. Yes, God's called me to do that. So verse 3, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too lowly of yourself. Assess yourself realistically. Understand how God has made you and glorify him in the way he has made you. Second, verses 4 and 5, it's a related truth. Realize that we all have different gifts, verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So the church is the body of Christ, isn't it? And the human body is composed of many different parts and many different members, and they don't all have the same function. Our hands and our feet have remarkably different functions, don't they? So so too with our eyes and our ears. The body is diverse. It's very different. So that's true in the body of Christ as well. So it's very similar to verse 3, isn't it, really? But we're part of one another, he says. We're part of the same body. We're unified together in Jesus Christ. We're unified together as a body, whether you feel it or not. It's not based on feelings, right? Our our bodies are unified. Our eyes and hands and feet and so forth and so on, they're all unified, whether the body feels it's unified or not. It's a fact. So we belong to one another as Christians. So we're to rejoice in the diversity of the body of Christ. We, we need one another. So God, God has given in this church, hasn't he? He's given elders and pastors, Ephesians 4, to equip the saints. How are the saints equipped, according to the Scripture? Primarily through teaching. So that's the fundamental role of elders, to preach and teach and equip the body. So the body, Ephesians 4, does the work of the ministry through the working of each individual part. Right? The Bible doesn't say the work of the ministry is done by the pastors and elders. Of course, they do some of it. But the Bible actually says the work of the ministry is done by what? The saints as they're equipped by, by the leaders. And, and you know, the same thing applies to, to the elders. You know, I, I rejoice in this church that we have a vision... Not, not just the leaders, but the whole church has a vision that it's a community of elders. It's a community of elders that lead and guide the church. So that's, that's been really freeing for me. And I think for the other elders as well. There's just no expectation, and I don't feel that pressure in the church, that one person should do it all. Because one person, right, we all have weaknesses, but a community together, a community together, we make up for the weaknesses, hopefully, with others. 
So that's how it works when you have a body of elders, and that's true as a church as a whole as well, isn't it? We have a variety of gifts. You are gifted by God. God has gifted you to encourage and strengthen and build up other believers. Every believer has a spiritual gift where they can help others and strengthen others, according to this text. So I I think our congregation has been wonderful at living out and realizing this truth of the diversity of the church, of the giftedness of each person. But I just want to encourage you. Are you involved in the lives of other believers there? Because God has gifted you to help and strengthen and encourage and challenge and rebuke other believers as you get into one another's lives. Do you you see somebody in the congregation who's alone or lonely? God's calling you, isn't he? If you see that and you have time, you're not investing yourself in others. He's calling you to invest yourself in, in others. We don't have a lone ranger mentality here. We have a mentality that we build up and strengthen one another. You know, we're just large enough that people can easily be missed. But all of us have a ministry. All of us have a calling. All of us can build one another up. So God wants to use your unique gifts to encourage and strengthen others. Third, third verses 6 through 8, focus on your gifts. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So what Paul says in verses 3 through 5, now he applies to specific gifts. Uh, did you notice that, did you notice Paul uses the word gifts? Not accomplishments, not, not what we've done, they're gifts. They're gifts that God has given us. They, there's nothing to boast about here. The gifts we have are given to us by God. They're a sign of God's grace. And His love and mercy in our lives. And every believer has spiritual gifts. That's clear in Ephesians 4, 7 as well. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So every believer has at least one spiritual gift. How do you discover it? How do you discover your spiritual gift according to the Scripture? You don't need to take a test. You don't have to do a survey. All you have to do is get involved in the body, and it will manifest itself. So if you don't know your gifts, either you're a young and inexperienced Christian, and that's okay, or you're not involved in the lives of other believers. When you pour yourself in the lives of other believers, your gifts or gift will manifest itself. Paul says, sort of the theme of the passage, we have different gifts We're not all the same. That's the diversity again. We celebrate that. We we don't fall prey to envy. We praise God for what he's given us. So let's look at a few of these quickly. And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on prophecy. I could say a lot more. 
Prophecy is to be exercised according to the proportion of our faith. I think he means by that prophecy is to be exercised according to the amount of our faith. Now, now the gift of prophecy is a very controversial topic. I could, I could do a whole sermon on this or more than one. So, so what I'm going to do today, I'm, I'm just going to make a few comments. And good, some good Christians would disagree with some of the things I'm going to say. You search the scriptures and see if these things are so. So, so here we go. Just to make a, a few quick comments about prophecy. I understand prophecy to be the speaking of the very words of God. So, I disagree with those who say that prophecies from God can be mixed with error. You can have prophecies from God that have some mistakes in them. I don't think that's right. I don't think there's a compelling notion for the idea that prophecy in the Old Testament was perfect... This is a popular view out there. The prophecy in the Old Testament was perfect, but in the New Testament it's imperfect. I reject that idea. I don't think that's compelling or convincing. Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets were judged by the same standard. That is, if their words came true, they were assessed to be prophets. If there was anything false in what they said, they were not prophets. They were rejected as false prophets. So New Testament prophets, just like Old Testament prophets, were considered to be true prophets if their word came to pass. And, of course, this is unique to the New Testament, if their word was in accord with the gospel. I mean, of course, that's true in the Old Testament in terms of predicting what would happen. But New Testament prophets, their word had to be true and it had to fit with the gospel. So I understand New Testament prophets to speak the perfect, inerrant word of God. So are there prophets today? My answer is no, there aren't. There aren't people out there who are speaking the infallible, inerrant word of God as prophets. The church is built, Ephesians 2.20 says, on the foundation of on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And I would argue that foundation has been laid. There are no more apostles to be expected in that sense who are laying the foundation or prophets. These are New Testament prophets. Notice the order. It's laid on the foundation of the apostles first, then the prophets. He's not speaking of Old Testament prophets there. Look at Ephesians 3, 5 if you want to see more about that. The church is laid on that foundation. That foundation has been laid. Now that we have the New Testament canon of Scripture, there's no longer any need for the gift of prophecy or the gift of apostleship. So what's the equivalent? What's the equivalent of prophecy today? I would argue it's reading Scripture. The the teaching of the apostles and prophets is found in the Bible. So now I'm going to do another little aside here. You know, this is a question. Maybe, maybe I hope some people are thinking about this, but it may be helpful to you anyway. But this is a question we get from visitors often at Clifton. And maybe, even as a regular member, you're asked this. Because I'm asked quite often, why is it at Clifton that you permit women to read Scripture and pray in 
the services. Well, you, you see, prophecy, what's the equivalent today? It's reading Scripture. 1 Corinthians 11.5 speaks approvingly of women praying and prophesying. You see it? Praying and prophesying in church with proper adornment. It speaks approvingly of that. For us at Clifton, that means women can pray and read Scripture. That's the equivalent of prophesying. In the assembly, as long as they're submissive to the male leadership in the church. So just in case you're visiting, we at Clifton believe that the elders, the pastors, the overseers are to be males. But women can pray and prophesy as long as they are submissive to the leadership. That means praying in the assembly, and that means reading Scripture in the assembly. Okay, just a little bit more on this. Hang on with me. Some people say, oh, but 1 Corinthians 11 is not talking about a worship service. It's talking about a home Bible study. That's really not a worship service there. I respectfully disagree. There's no evidence in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 that these are meetings outside the meetings of the whole assembly. After all, in the early church, they met in homes. That's where the church met. Furthermore, the very next passage is about celebrating the Lord's Supper. And that's something they did together as a church. And the very next passage, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, is about the exercise of gifts like tongue and prophecy in the assembly. So I don't think there's any evidence in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 that we're just speaking of meetings outside the whole gathered assembly. So if I lost you, I'm saying, what I'm saying is this, it seems to me that the evidence we have is that in the early church, when believers were gathered together, women prophesied in the church when the whole church was gathered, and they prayed. And the equivalent for us today is the reading of Scripture. What about 1 Corinthians 14? 1 Corinthians 14 says that women should be silent in the church. So how how can women pray and read Scripture when 1 Corinthians 14 says women should be silent in the church? I think 1 Corinthians 14 is speaking to a specific situation, either where the women are disturbing the worship service with questions or, or they're judging the prophecies of the men and subverting male leadership. But look, Paul, Paul wouldn't, in 1 Corinthians 11, give all these instructions about how women are to be properly or Uh, adorned to pray and prophesy if at the end of the day he doesn't think they ought to do it at all. You see? That just doesn't make sense. Why go through all the regulations about how you're to be adorned if you say at the end of the day they can't do it at all? So I don't think that is compelling. Okay. Parentheses closed. Long parentheses. Let's come back to the gifts in Romans 12. In verses 7 and 8, Paul lifts... Three gifts. And he says one should concentrate on the gift one has. Those who have the gift of service should concentrate on serving. Those with the gift of teaching should focus on teaching. Those who have a gift of exhortation and encouragement should devote themselves to encouraging others. Now, this is what Paul is saying about all the gifts, and it's very practical. 
What is he saying? We should put our energies into the gifts we have. Now, we've got to be careful right here. We don't say, I have the gift of teaching. I don't serve, right? But that's not Paul's point in this passage, is it? Of course, we, we must not and cannot say, well, that's not my gift. I just don't do that. On the other hand, on the other hand, Paul is saying here, life is short. And God has designed the body so that we should concentrate on the gifts that God has given us. So you need to spend your time maximizing the gifts that God has given you. That's not unspiritual. That's wise. I remember a student coming to me several years ago at the seminary, and he was trying to invest all his time to study the biblical languages. You know, we have a particular track where you can do that. And he said, I'm studying Greek and Hebrew and I'm working so hard and, and I'm terrible at this and I'm so discouraged. I'm just studying and studying and studying and I'm, not, I'm, I'm getting terrible grades and so forth and so on. And I said to him, you're trying hard. You should try hard at things you're not good at. But that's not your gift. God's telling you something through this experience, isn't he? That's not what you're supposed to do with your life. And he was so encouraged and relieved. That's right, isn't it? If you just pour yourself into something and it's not working, that's not where God's leading him. He was confused, wasn't he, about what he should do. God had gifted him in other ways and wants him to serve in other ways. And that's what he should pursue. And that's what Paul is saying to us here. Don't ignore areas where you're weak but find where God has gifted you and plug in there. Concentrate your energies there. So we're back, we're back to the beginning now, aren't we? Don't try to be what you're not. Don't try to live based on what God has not made you to be. All right. Paul closes with three exhortations. Let's look at those exhortations. First, those who give money should do so generously. Those who have a gift of giving. We're all to give, aren't we? But some have a special gift for giving. And Paul emphasizes, be generous. Be cheerful. God isn't pleased. And this is true of all of us, isn't it? God isn't pleased if we give grudgingly with a stingy or crabby spirit. God wants us to give with lavishness and with delight. We're not to give for the praise of men, but for the glory of God. Remember Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God supplies all our needs. We just give out of what he's given to us. We don't, we don't beg for money here at Clifton because we know God will supply our needs. But, the, but giving is a joy, isn't it? to give to the cause of Christ and to support the gospel, that brings great joy. And if it doesn't bring great joy, that's a, that's a spiritual issue in your own life. Second, second, the one who leads is to do so with zeal and with diligence. Leaders have a great responsibility. Many leaders aren't accountable because... No one's watching them. 
They're, they're in charge. So there isn't a built-in accountability. Often leaders have freedom to do what they want with their time without others watching. So isn't it interesting that Paul says to leaders, work hard, be diligent. You have a great responsibility as a leader to use your time well. Remember, God is watching over you. If he's called you to lead, God is watching over you, and he is assessing your work. We must not, as leaders, use our leadership to impose our selfish will on others. Leaders are called upon to listen to what others say who are under their leadership. So we become bad leaders if we become blind to our weaknesses. We no longer listen to others and we don't work with zeal and diligence and discipline. We're to do our work for the glory of God and for the praise of His name. And then lastly, if your gift is mercy, He says be cheerful. All of us are to be merciful to others, but some have a particular gift of mercy. If that's your gift, what are you doing? You're constantly helping others, aren't you? Over and over, you're, you're meeting the needs of others. And what's the danger? The danger is you grow tired. Start to grumble about how much you're assisting and helping others. So where does the joy come from? It comes from a relationship with God, doesn't it? It comes from knowing God, being filled with His Spirit, serving for His praise, not to get praise from others. If you show mercy because you're conscious of God showing mercy to you, that well won't run dry. He will will refill you and replenish you. So in closing... We all need, don't we, a fresh outpouring of God's grace. I think of a couple weeks ago on Wednesday night. If you weren't here, you should go back and listen to it. We had John Benton speak to us about how the house of Stephanus refreshed the saints. And that's what we're to do as a body, aren't we? We're to refresh one another. Refresh one another with the gifts that God has given us. We're to strengthen one another. We're to be a well of water to one another. And we're we're such as we depend upon the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have made us different. And we do praise you that you've given us different quantities of faith. Lord, we think of the way you've made each one of us and how you teach us as our lives continue who and what you've made us. And Lord, we don't want to turn in upon ourselves and be thinking fundamentally about us. But Lord, we do want to be wise and to recognize what and who you've made us to be. And I do pray for each one in here that you would grant such insight. And Lord, I pray that you would grant peace and rest to each one here. Lord, may you give us rest in what you've made us to be and joy as we recognize your grace in our lives and how you have made us to
contribute to the lives of others and to strengthen each other in the things of the Lord. Lord, may we rejoice in this great privilege that you've given us to strengthen and encourage one another. May we not be cast down by these truths, but lifted up. May we realize that apart from you, that we can do nothing and that everything good in our lives is due to your marvelous grace. So fill us, we pray, with incredible joy, the joy that only you can give. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.